Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we discussed the rising power of the nobles in the Merovingian kingdoms, concluding that while they were far from unchallenged, they were growing bolder and harder to deal with. This week, we're going to discuss why warfare had fundamentally changed in the realm, going through the reasons for the shift to low-intensity warfare point by point. Then, we'll take a look at some examples from Gregory's histories and see how they demonstrate the shifts we've been discussing. But our examination of growing noble influence will continue as they play a large role in the ongoing civil war between Guntram and Shilperic. All that in episode 33, Changing Warfare. We're now about two decades into the reigns of Chilperic and Guntram, and things look very different to how they began. The senior figure of Charbert is gone, along with any stabilizing influence he might have had. The militaristic and ambitious Sigurd is also gone, and his kingdom has been reduced to its eastern heartland of Austrasia, its underage king a pawn in the geopolitical games of his uncles. Chilperic was able to absorb much of the kingdoms of Charibert and Sigurd, forming the basis for the powerful northwestern kingdom of Neustria, but he was still challenged by his remaining half-brother, Guntram. After a somewhat underwhelming start to his reign, Guntram had consolidated his position and his southeastern kingdom of Burgundy had emerged as a major power to rival that of Neustria. The war between the two kings, despite their consolidation of power and resources, was very different from the decisive campaigns of Clovis, his sons, or even Sigurd. It was now dominated by nobles rather than kings, and mostly consisted of small-scale campaigns in specific regions. With the pace of conquest slowing dramatically, attention had been recently turned to diplomacy, with Sigurd's son Childebert II and his court being influenced by both of his uncles, who both wanted more support. But why had warfare changed so dramatically? Why didn't Guntram simply amass an army and march on Paris? It's not like that much time had actually passed. Why had the Merovingians, previously known as wild, aggressive warrior kings, suddenly become slow, subtle strategists? Well, like always, there is a lot to unpack before we can answer that question. First, the most obvious answer. Capability. Guntram had never been a military man. His generalship under his father Clothar had been lackluster. When sent with Charibert against his rebellious half-brother Kram, way back in episode 10, he had failed to capture the prince. In the wars between Chilperic and Sigurd, he had always played a minor role ping-ponging between the two sides whenever one was in a position to threaten him. Overall, it is clear that Guntram just wasn't much of a warrior, nor does he seem to have wanted to be one. 
Chilperic, on the other hand, had shown at least some willingness to command his troops and try his hand at this whole war thing. But we get the sense this was largely because of ambition, not proficiency. In his first war against his three half-brothers, he seems to have been utterly outmatched. Sigebert defeated him time and time again in their incessant wars, only stopping short of removing him, first due to pressure from the other kings, and later being assassinated, of course. After Sigebert's death, Chilperic's fortunes at war did not really improve much. Despite his overwhelming power, his conflict with the Bretons, back in episode 24, was underwhelming, bordering on humiliating. It seems, like Guntram, he just wasn't cut out for military life. So, both of the major kings were less than capable, and at this point seemingly unwilling to lead their forces themselves. This may seem like a minor thing, after all, they had generals and nobles they could send instead, but it was actually a massive part of why these wars ground to a halt. Even with the rising power of the nobles, the kings were still, by far, the dominant powers in the realm. Noble armies might have had the capacity to challenge a prince, like when Guntram Boso killed Chilperic's eldest son in battle, but definitely not a king. Recruiting, equipping, and maintaining an army was a massive task in this time of weak government and administration. A king simply had far more resources and prestige, both of which were needed to attract and keep the fickle armies of the time. Plus, as we saw with Chilperic's campaign against the Bretons, Merovingian armies were increasingly filled with local levies. Only the king had the capacity to order whole regions to mobilize. Nobles were still struggling to control their own pockets of authority. Without kingly resources and prestige, truly massive armies couldn't form, and since neither Chilperic nor Guntram showed any willingness to take to the battlefield and decide things once and for all, well, it looks like stalemate would be the order of the day. But why were these men so willing to exist with a mortal enemy just across the border? Remember, the new alliance signed by Chilperic and Childebert specifically stated that they planned on removing Guntram from power. Why would he be willing to sit back? Facing this new hostile alliance, why wouldn't he take the fight to Chilperic, or at least Childebert? Well, this is the second reason for the change in warfare. Intention. At this point, both Chilperic and Guntram controlled vast realms and vast riches. And, as we've seen, both men had a lot of difficulty controlling their realms, and were often faced with everything from internal conflicts, to rebellions, to legal disputes, to political constraints. Remember, the early Merovingians had relied heavily on solving problems with the sword, now that the Merovingian capacity and eagerness for war was diminishing, 
That meant internal conflicts were going to arise where previously fear of violent retribution might have dissuaded them. In the novel 1984 by George Orwell, the world has been divided into three massive states, Eurasia, East Asia, and Oceania. These three states are in a constant low-intensity war, and later in the novel, it is revealed that none of them are actually fighting all that hard, because they have realised it suits them better to have external enemies as a threat for their own citizens, to keep them in line. This situation, though fictional, maps oddly well onto the conflict at this point in Merovingian history. Merovingian administration was, frankly, terrible, and Chilperic and Guntram were already struggling to maintain their grip on their realms. My personal theory is that neither man was trying particularly hard to unseat the other, because the status quo suited them just fine. Let's think about this situation for a moment. What did these Merovingian kings really need? Well, they needed stability first, and having an external enemy to focus your unruly nobles on certainly helped with this. They also needed lands to loot, both so that they could satisfy their followers' insatiable lust for riches, and so that they could maintain their own prestige. Well, the ravaging and seizure of border territories certainly fulfills this as well. If one king successfully removed the other, a clear external enemy would be a lot harder to find, and they would be forced to look for non-Frankish enemies along their borders for lands to loot, and the pickings were slim. The Bretons were not rich, and Chilperic had already learned that they were tough customers. Same goes for the Saxons in the northeast and the Basques to the southwest. The only other options were the Visigothic and Lombard kingdoms. The Visigoths might have been a decent target, but Spain was vast, and at this point, the royal families of Spain and Gaul were already fairly intertwined, making conflict somewhat difficult. The Lombards in Italy were much tougher, as Guntram had learned when their warbands had ravaged his lands early in his reign. Italy might be a prized target, but the Lombards had been hardened by constant conflict with the Eastern Romans, and were pretty entrenched. Plus, previous campaigns across the Alps hadn't exactly gone well for the Merovingians. The next big reason I'd like to discuss is quality, specifically the quality of Frankish troops. During the reigns of Clovis and his sons, Frankish troops were fearsome tribal warriors. Toughened by constant conflict with powerful enemies, disciplined by the adoption of Roman techniques and tactics, led by talented and ambitious men. Even in this generation, Sigebert had found the most success of all the kings on the battlefield, in large part thanks to his ability to draw troops from the Frankish tribes who still lived along the Rhine, and still faced constant conflict with the ever-restless Saxons. Frankish armies 
had always consisted of a corps of professionals called ludes, who were likely often mounted given the numerous descriptions we have of fearsome Frankish cavalry. They were then supplemented by infantry, who formed the vast majority of the fighting forces. It was this infantry mass that had declined precipitously in quality over the years. Instead of hardened tribal warriors, likely well equipped by the standards of the time, armies were now drawn from mostly inexperienced peasant stock in Gaul itself. These men were simply not a competent replacement, and seemed to have been much less disciplined and less loyal to their commanders. Without a decent army, it is much harder to mount a serious offensive campaign. Chilperic's Breton campaign is not the only example. As we move forward in this period, we'll see more and more examples of the decline in the quality of Frankish armies. This decline will be so entrenched by the end of the Merovingian period that Charlemagne's grandfather, Charles Martel, will be forced to seize church lands to fund a massive overhaul of Frankish troops in order to make them an internationally competitive fighting force once again. Before we move on to the passage from Gregory, there is one more factor I want to highlight, and that is the role of the nobles. In this period, the majority of the war between Chilperic and Guntram was persecuted by nobles, and that is a significant development for a bunch of reasons. First, as we discussed earlier, nobles were not able to fight on the same scale as the kings, limiting the scope of the war. Second, also discussed before, they were mostly interested in loot, with any lands they could seize being a secondary bonus. Holding new lands was hard, especially since there was always the chance the king might take them away from you, and generally these nobles had already had large land holdings. These nobles were fighting on behalf of their kings, but they were mostly fighting for themselves and their own enrichment. Third, and perhaps most importantly, the kings were happy to let the nobles loot and seize new territories for the kingdom, but there was a limit on what they could allow. A big part of the stability of the early Merovingian realm was the Merovingian monopoly on the use of force. Since their rule was still new, it makes sense that we only really see kings and princes commanding significant forces. Anyone not of the blood would be problematic, both for their prestige and for potential rebellions. In the middle Merovingian period, Merovingian legitimacy was a lot more solid, allowing nobles to take to the field, but the risks were still there. Should a noble become too successful and powerful, they might pose a threat to the king. This is perhaps another reason for the conflict between the general Mamulus and Guntram that we discussed a couple episodes ago. Mamulus was the most famous general of the time, and after Sigebert, definitely the most successful. Given Guntram's military failures, both personal and by his nobles, removing Mamulus from court might have been a prudent move, 
given the man's reputation, risked eclipsing that of his king. Perhaps he had already grown too powerful. The fact he escaped and was able to safely entrench himself in Avignon might indicate this. All of these factors help explain why the conflict between Guntram and Chilperic simmered rather than boiled, and why the Frankish war machine would become less and less effective over the years. The passage Gregory writes about the campaigns that occurred in the immediate aftermath of the alliance between Chilperic and Childebert II helps to underline this. There are three campaigns highlighted, each interesting in their own right, but each containing less information than the one before. The major one first. Chilperic, sensing weakness in Guntram's court, sends out Duke Desiderius on what Gregory calls a quote, particularly savage attack, end quote. Now, of course, if Chilperic had really wanted to seize the moment of his rival's weakness, he could have amassed a major force and led it himself. So this shows clear evidence of our discussion of the king's reluctance to get personally involved in the conflict. Nevertheless, the campaign of Desiderius went ahead. He marched south, first defeating one of Guntram's dukes in the field, then seizing two cities and the surrounding region, and capturing, then robbing, the duke's wife before eventually allowing her to leave. This is basically the stock standard campaign of this conflict. Devastating to the local population, I don't want to understate the brutality and devastation caused by moving armies, but overall changing little. The cities seized were in the large, disputed region of Aquitaine, which at this point served as little more than a tax base for the Merovingian kings. Desiderius didn't even strike towards Burgundy. So, a pretty inconsequential result in the end. But, Chilperic got his prestige from the so-called savage attack, Desiderius and his men got the loot, job well done. The next story is very interesting. Gregory records that Duke Berolf learned that the men of Bourges were planning on invading the district around Tours, so he amassed his own army and instead marched on Bourges, looting and devastating the land as he went. He then occupied the area and called it a day. It is once we look at the details that the story becomes interesting. First, no order came down from Chilperic, meaning Berolf did this on his own initiative. You could argue he was simply protecting the realm from invading forces, but the forces had not yet invaded. Plus, Gregory gives no details about how Berolf learned this information, and I don't think it takes a conspiracy theorist to wonder whether he simply made the threat up, so he could go do some looting. After all, it was free real estate. This naked self-interest is underlined by Gregory noting that the territory around Uzer and Baru was also devastated by Berolf, even though it lay near Tours itself. This shows the campaign was less about strengthening the realm and more about plunder, even if the lands being plundered were your own lands. 
This is the kind of slow shift towards unrestricted private warfare that reveals the increasingly unrestrained actions of the noble class. The last part of the passage is literally one sentence, but it contains a key piece of information. Gregory states, quote, Duke Bladist marched into Gascony and lost the greater part of his army, end quote. That's it. Not much information, right? Now, I promise I'm not only bringing this up because I love the name Bladist, it actually reinforces what we were discussing with the difficulty of attacking non-Frankish border territories. Gascony was a mountainous fringe region in southwestern Gaul, occupied then, and still today, by the Basque people, often called Vascons at the time. These were the same tough mountain tribes that would later deal Charlemagne his most famous defeat at the Roncesvaux Pass, inspiring the classic French epic, the Song of Roland. Duke Bladist, like Charlemagne, seems to have underestimated these tribes. He likely thought he could raid their lands with his superior numbers and nab himself a little bit of plunder. But Gascony was on the fringe for a reason. The Basques knew their territory well, and responded to hostile incursions with clever and devastating mountain warfare. This is a perfect representation of the difficult campaigns that faced the Merovingians on their borders. Gascony was almost impossible to subdue. Brittany was also nothing but hills and aggressive warriors. Saxony, similarly hard warriors and as the Romans had learned centuries ago, mostly made up of impenetrable forests. It would take Charlemagne almost 30 years of overwhelming force to subdue Saxony. For the Merovingians, you might as well keep fighting amongst yourselves, because there was little else of value to be had in the surrounding areas. That is it for our discussion of the civil war and warfare in general at the time. These are important points to remember moving forward, as Frankish military incompetence will come up again and again. But, importantly, this is why the descendants of the aggressive warrior kings who had conquered whole kingdoms in single campaigns were reduced to small-scale warfare. Next week, we'll turn to the never-controversial topic of religion and take a look at some stories of bishops' morality and the difficult times for Jewish adherents in the kingdoms. See you then.